It's 2.30 on the clock. I'll make a start. Thank you for coming. My name's Alan Bowman. I'm a professor of ancient history, brackets Roman, in this university. And um, contrary to what you might think, this is not going to be a lecture on English poetry of the 20th century. Um, this is going to be a lecture on uh, the Vindolanda writing tablets, which have been a subject of my research for the last, what feels like, about 200 years. Um, and I thought I might begin with this poem of W.H. Auden, which uh, was written in 1973. Um, some of you may be uh, familiar with another poem by Auden, I'm sure many of you are, called uh, Roman War Blues, which begins, over the heather, the wet wind blows, I've lice in my tunic and a cold in my nose. The rain comes pattering out of the sky. I'm a wall soldier, I don't know why. Um, reminded me of the last occasion on which I gave a version of this lecture to alumni a couple of years ago, actually at, uh, on, on location. Uh, and I've never seen rain like that before, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> reminded me of the several occasions on which I visited houseteads and got out of the car and thought, oh no, can't do it. Um, one of the reasons that I think this poem is a bit more apposite, actually, is, uh, first of all, that it <clears throat> was actually written in 1973, which by coincidence was the year in which uh, Robin Burley, the archaeologist at Vindolanda, found the first of the Vindolanda writing tablets, uh, as I'll explain in a bit more detail in a moment, uh, but also because uh, the uh, great feature of these things, uh, uh, one of the great features at least, is that they, um, they do reveal evidence of lifeways, as it says in the middle of that poem, lifeways about which we knew until the discovery of this written material, very little indeed uh, in uh, uh, in terms of the Roman occupation of northern Britain. And uh, that is one of the, uh, as I will try to explain, uh, one of the uh, fascinating aspects uh, of this material uh, which uh, has occupied me now for, as I say, 30 years. Me and my colleague uh, David Thomas at the University of Durham who have worked on this, uh, uh, I have to say, quite difficult material uh, for um, just over 30 years. And indeed, as I hope to show you, we are still um, working on some of it even now including that piece down there, which is one of the originals, which I hijacked on its way to the British Museum, which is where the rest of the collection uh, lived for, as they say, research purposes. Uh, you are welcome to come and have a look at it later, but um, don't, don't break it any further than it's already broken. Um, if you can read it, so much the better. Because <laughs> I can't yet. Um, the um, archaeology of Vindolanda uh, is uh, significant and uh, in terms of understanding what the tablets are about. And I wanted to just explain uh, this very briefly. Uh, and that, uh, the explanation will also give you a, another clue as to why I think the um, poem of Auden about archaeology is slightly more apposite than the poem about the Roman War. Uh, the obvious uh, reason is that when these things were written, the Roman War wasn't actually there. Um, those of you who have been to the Hadrian exhibition at the British Museum will notice that I sneaked a couple of the tablets in there uh, with a certain amount of statistical arguing, uh, which uh, persuaded the curator, Torsten Offer, that these were in fact relevant to Hadrian, although of course they were written before Hadrian became emperor, uh, not of course before he was born. Um, as I'm sure many of you know, the location of Vindolanda in the central sector here is just south of Hadrian's Wall, and one of the key features of them is the fact, one of the most important features of them, is the fact that uh, a very great deal of what they reveal about uh, the Roman military and civilian occupation of this area in 
the uh, uh, period of the late first and early second centuries is pre-Hadrianic. So all of this is relevant to the uh, uh, platform from which uh, the building of Hadrian's Wall uh, um, took off, as it were, uh, from, from the Romanization, the uh, military occupation of the frontier zone in the period uh, before um, Hadrian um, built the wall. Um, one, one of the key features of the uh, of Vindolanda is the fact that it was one of the three or four most important sites in the pre-Hadrianic frontier defence system of uh, northern Britain. Uh, the others being Carlisle and Corbridge in particular. Those three, Corbridge, Carlisle and Vindolanda, really formed the basis of the defensive system, the Romanising system of the frontier zone in the period between about AD 85 and 120. Uh, 122, of course, was the year in which the uh, building of the wall began. So the importance of Vindolanda as a site can't be, um, can't be understated. Uh, and the um, archaeology, many of you will be uh, familiar with what the site looks like. The um, fort which you see there on the aerial photograph, um, this one here, is in fact also irrelevant to the material that I'll be talking about today because this is the fort from the, th the stone fort of the 3rd century AD, well over 100 years later uh, than the material which was excavated from the earlier periods. And the um, details of the discovery of the writing tablets really centre on this little area here, this rather deeper shaded patch of green where you can see uh, that hard by the west wall of the third century fort, there is this little tongue of land which um, lies between the third century fort wall and the civilian structures, the civili so-called civilian vicus to the west of the Vindolanda fort, uh, which is also th mainly third and fourth century in origin. And the archaeologist Robin Burley, um, in order to discover what lay beneath the uh, third and fourth century structures, was able to begin excavations in 1973 uh, in this area here, which <coughs> took him down below the 3rd and 4th century structures to the pre-Hadrianic levels. Uh, and this is what he found. Ha. This, this, the caption of this slide is, why I'm not an archaeologist. Um, uh, a lot of mud, a lot of um, timber fragments, beams, uh, a lot of leather work small objects of various kinds in this very sodden uh, context which had to be constantly pumped out in order to enable the excavators to, to get at the, um, the material that they wanted to excavate and conserve. The uh, actual layout of the forts in the pre-Hadrianic um, period uh, is summarised in this sketch here which I think uh, uh, illustrates it very simply. Um, we've got uh, the third century fort, which is this one that you can see with the headquarters building at the centre, that was uh, visible on the slide, the aerial slide which I showed you. And then, hypothetically, underneath uh, the third century fort, the earlier structures, which uh, in fact amount to two phases of building. Um, I'm going to stop talking about archaeology in a minute, I promise you. Two phases of building, of which this is the first, which probably is the earliest fort at Vindolanda, dating to around 85 to 90, just after Agricola's conquest of uh, this area, and then enlarged in the second phase to a double-sized fort, uh, which probably dates to, in its various phases, to the period between about the early 90s and 
the building of, well, post-dating the building of Hadrian's Wall, really, down to about 130. And this is the key fact in understanding the physical context of the writing tablets, because what we've actually got here is the, the uh, plan showing what would be the central axis, the, the north-south axis of the fort, of the larger fort, uh, and to the, um, to the uh, east side of it, um, in this area, which corresponds to that little green uh, area of land I showed you on the aerial photograph, we have buildings on that side of the main axis. And the buildings on that side of the main axis seem certainly to have been the headquarters of the commanding officers of the units stationed at Vindolanda in the period between about 90 and 120. And that's absolutely crucial uh, for understanding uh, the physical context of this written material that we found. Most of it comes from that headquarters building period, which stretches between about 92 and 105 or 106 AD. Probably the later phase of that area, uh, between about 106 or 107 and 115, say, uh, in, in that period, the area may have been converted to, the, uh, to use as a barracks. So we've got a combination of residents of the commanding officers of the units and barracks building uh, over this period between about 92 and 120 AD. And uh, the buildings themselves, um, these plans, these archaeological plans, just give you some notion of what uh, kind of structures they will have been. Multi-room buildings with residence for domestic staff, officers, wives, children, and uh, various other uh, parts of the menage of a commanding officer. So we're not just talking about ordinary soldiers here, we're talking about the, uh, the commanders of the units. Uh, and the, um, the, um, this is the earliest part of this commanding officer's residence phase, which is around uh, the early 90s, and then it moves on to a similar building, but with a larger, uh, more palatial layout, and more rooms. It was obviously enlarged, and this is the period between about 1897 and 103, 104, something like that. Uh, and this is the, the so-called period three building, which uh, is the uh, site of the heaviest concentration of writing tablets uh, of the whole uh, collection of around 1,500 or so of these tablets. The majority uh, come from this period, and a smaller number, but a significant number, from the later phases in which the area was occupied by a barracks building. Um, this is an attempt by, uh, by the archaeologists to represent uh, what it would have looked like laterally, and this uh, area here, which is crucial uh, for the understanding of the tablets, is actually a, an open, it seems to have been an open courtyard area, um, and um, these two little fringed drawings here uh, represent what the archaeologists called a bonfire site, uh, where when the unit moved out, they clearly made some attempt to burn a lot of the waste material that they didn't want, wanted to dump when they left, um, and uh, one of the more plausible uh, archaeological theories uh, concerning this is that uh, the um, fires were put out by rain. <laughs> <laughs> to which we therefore owe the preservation of these tablets because they tried to burn them. There are clear signs of burning on, on some of them, but it didn't work. Um, it rained. <laughs> I should also say in defence of, uh, of the weather in this region that after, uh, after I did give this lecture to a group of alumni two years ago, I then spent 10 days walking the wall in glorious sunshine. <laughs> um, so uh, that um, uh, is what I hope is a very brief and 
um, I hope, understandable summary of the context of the material. Uh, the, uh, one of the key features about understanding this um, in relation to the occupants of the residence of the commanding officer is the belief uh, that, first of all, uh, the knowledge, first of all, that these um, units uh, that occupied this fort, as I'll describe in a moment, were all units from uh, Holland and northern Germany, that's where they were raised, uh, units from the, from the Netherlands and northern Germany, the Rhine Delta, basically. Uh, but also the, the, the knowledge, which we've had for some time uh, before these tablets were found, that uh, traditionally uh, these units, uh, which are well known as auxiliary units in the Roman army generally, uh, tended to be commanded by their own, the commanding officers tended to be their own native elites. Not Romans, not Italians, but North German and, uh, and, and Dutch tribal chieftains, if you like. And that, again, is one of the key features for understanding the context of this written material, that it was generated in a household of Roman officers who were not actually Romans, but were natives of the uh, Lower Rhine area, as we'll see in a moment. Um, so the rest of this uh, uh, talk really concentrates on uh, trying to suggest uh, what sort of lifeways these uh, tablets tell us about, what sort of material it is, uh, and um, what's... Uh, what is the importance of the context of this written material in our knowledge of the um, gradual acculturation of what is, after all, uh, the, uh, furthest most, uh, the, the furthermost uh, um, reaches of Roman civilization and Roman military control in the northwestern part of the empire. It's actually quite significant that the type of material itself was very unexpected when it was first found in the 1970s. This is, uh, I'm sure, will be familiar to many of you as a, a Roman stylus tablet. In fact, I don't think it's that one there, but it's a very similar one. Uh, these are the traditional wax tablets with, uh, um, on which um, text was scratched inside with a metal stylus. And there are about 150 of these things found at Vindolanda. Uh, almost all of them, in fact, I think everyone except one, um, found with the wax gone and simply traces of the scratches underneath where the stylus the metal stylus penetrated the wax and left, uh, in most cases, virtually illegible scratches uh, on, the, on the wood underneath, uh, compounded by <coughs> wood grain and various other uh, forms of damage uh, which made them difficult to read. One of the things we've been doing in Oxford for the last uh, 10 or 12 years is attempting, I have been doing in, in collaboration with some very clever engineering scientists who uh, uh, specialise in signal processing, is trying to devise new methods of image enhancement which will help us to read these things. Um, uh, it's a very difficult problem of image enhancement in three dimensions, very often dealing with texts which are overlaid. In other, in other words, these things were used more than once, so you get two sets of scratches, one overlaid on top of another. It's a really wonderful problem. It's at least a three glasses of whiskey problem. <laughs> uh, before you even think about how you might do it. And I will actually come back to, uh, to that at the end, but you may... If, if you take a look at that thing there, you will see um, uh, what a fascinating challenge they represent. But, as I say, that, uh, 50, uh, 150 of these things only represents about 10% of what was found at Vindolanda. Um, and it was a very great surprise to us to discover uh, that 90% of these things were something quite different, which had really were not known before in uh, this part of the Roman world, or indeed hardly in any part of the Roman world. These are just very thin slices of wood, about the size of a postcard, written directly in carbon-based ink. Uh, the surface is generally prepared. 
Um, I think we're probably with just a rubbing of beeswax to stop the ink leaching. And then they write the things with a uh, probably a, um, a reed pen of some sort, although there is a little bit of controversy about that um, uh, because the archaeologist, uh, the archaeologists at Vindalanda believe that um, that uh, objects, uh, uh, numerous objects which you found at Vindalanda and had normally up until then been classified as what are called ox goads, i.e. things which you stick in the backside of an ox to make it move when you want to, are in fact fountain pens. Interesting <laughs> Yeah, this is, this, is, this is a controversy into which I have not entered. Uh, all, I can say for all I can say for sure is that, um, that some of these texts quite clearly show, the, the ink remains quite clearly show that they were written by a pen with a split nib. Uh, that, of course, doesn't uh, preclude it being metal, uh, but it perhaps makes it a bit less likely. Anyway, here we have these things, and this is, this is, an, uh, this is a text I'll come back to a little bit later because it has some social, social and linguistic interest. But for the moment, I just wanted to show it in order to illustrate uh, one of the two most common formats in which these thin slices of wood are used, these postcard-sized slices. This is the normal format for a letter, a, a piece of personal correspondence in which they take the uh, piece of wood, they write in two columns normally. In this case, the right-hand column, as you can see, consists of only one line, uh, but they write in two columns, they score it down the centre, fold it over, uh, and then write the address on the back. And uh, there is the example of the address on the back. It's not a very distinct one, and in fact, this one is lacking the top uh, left-hand corner, as you can see, which is, in fact, if it had survived, place where you might expect to find the place name to which the letter was being sent or taken. So you might well find Vindolandis up there, or Vindol for short, or uh, possibly some other place name, because there are quite a lot of examples in this collection of letters which were clearly written to people at other places. And the explanation of uh, their um, turning up at Vindolanda must, I suppose, be that the people who received them at other places uh, were outposted or travelling or, or posted somewhere else and brought them back and then dump, <coughs> excuse me, dumped them uh, when they left Vindolanda. So we've got a, we've got a um, uh, usually a place name up there, the name of the person to whom the text is addressed or the letter is addressed in sort of largish writing, and then down here, which you can hardly see in this case, but usually written on a slant, the name of the person from whom it's coming. So it's ab and then personal name. Uh, written down at the bottom here. I've got another example of that I want to show you a little bit later. So that's, that's what letters look like. Um, the other format in which they use these things is for accounts and documents, most of which will have been generated at Vindolanda itself. This is um, a, a slightly unusual um, uh, example, but what it does is it illustrates the way in which they used the tablet in the other orientation for writing things in columns, like accounts. Now, in fact, this is not an account. This is a very interesting text, the nature of which is not entirely clear. Um, but it's, um, it's, it's a list of commodities and probably weights of commodities in a part of the text which was lost on this side in two sections with a gap in the middle. And what we actually think this is is a medical prescription or a collection of medical prescriptions for um, common ailments uh, such as um, conjunctivitis and eye inflammation, which is very common at Vindolanda. And these, these, the, the, the items in this list actually do correspond to quite a lot of the, um, of the kinds of prescriptions which you find in medical writers, uh, Celsus and uh, uh, other medical writers give it, giving um, uh, remedies for particularly common kinds of disease. But the main, the main point I wanted to make about this is, again, 
that you've got the thing in, in two half leaves which are folded and these tie holes and notches which can be used to, uh, to tie them up and seal them if necessary. So that's the, the other main format for the two major kinds of material which we have which are um, on the one hand personal letters and on the other hand uh, documents of uh, various kinds. Uh, there remain uh, some enigmas which uh, um, present an even greater challenge than uh, uh, some of the material I've already talked about. This is um, one of about half a dozen uh, examples of writing which look like this. Uh, guesses, well, our guess is that it's Latin shorthand, uh, but there ain't enough to be able to decipher it. We know, of course, that Latin shorthand existed. We know that it was in common use in the army. Uh, there are no examples of Latin shorthand, actual examples, known before the 5th or 6th century AD. So if we're right, this will be something that predates uh, our known examples of Latin shorthand by uh, uh, four or five hundred years. But unfortunately, as I say, we don't really have any clue as to what kind of a text this might be or how to go about deciphering, deciphering it with such a small uh, sample of the writing. Uh, quite a lot of the material itself uh, reflects on the military occupation of the region. And I just wanted, before I move on, to talk a little bit more about um, social um, and um, economic uh, matters, uh, a little bit more about the occupants and about the military occupation of this area. Um, you can see here, um, I think, I'm not going to go through all these texts, you'll be glad to know, <laughs> but, you, but you can see here um, W.H. Auden's Tongrians uh, up, up there, the, the, the Tongrian cohort, which was probably the, the uh, unit which occupied Vindolanda in the earliest part of the uh, period which I talked about a few moments ago, uh, early 90s. The, uh, unit, uh, the unit of occupation appears to have been the first cohort of Tungrians, uh, of which the prefect, as this uh, text says, the prefect was a man named Julius Bericundus. And one thing which this text does is to give you a breakdown of the numbers of, of uh, soldiers uh, stationed at Vindolanda, of the home, the home base, and the numbers which are outposted I've not given you the complete text, actually, but this is the top half of it. Uh, and you can see that it lists um, here some 337 of the unit, which would be well over half of this 500-strong unit, was actually uh, outposted to a place called Corris. And that is uh, another of the contributions of these texts, is to make it quite clear that uh, Corris must be the real Latin name of Corbridge. It's not called Stockitum, it's Coria. Um, uh, every time I go there, I look to see if they've changed the sign. <laughs> um, there, there are a couple, uh, at least a dozen occurrences of this place name in, in the tablets, and it really must be Corbridge. And, as you can see, uh, various groups of soldiers doing other things too. One of the things that this emphasises, actually, um, I don't want to go into this in huge detail, is the, great, is the great flexibility of the Roman military establishment. They're moving people around all over the place. Um, and... Um, you may think this is a joke, and it's not really a joke. It's uh, not even really a semi-frivolous remark. But one of the, I think one of the ways in which the Romans persuaded the natives that they were really very powerful was by moving the soldiers around so the natives thought they were more than they actually were. Um, it's not entirely a joke. <laughs> There's a very famous passage in one of Ernest Hemingway's novels uh, in which, um, is it for whom the bell tolls or call to arms? Farewell to arms? Anyway, it's the one about the Spanish Civil War, where the American is training the Spanish uh, resistance fighters to, to, to resist. And he says, you know, what, you, what you've got to do is actually sit down and count them, and then write it down. Um, 
and, and in societies which are, of course, not used to literate habits, this is, this is, a, this is a key thing. So the, the role of communication and written knowledge and keeping track of things is, one of, is for my money, one of the key things in, uh, in understanding the way in which the Romans actually did manage to control really quite large areas of territory with relatively small numbers of people. Um, uh, so that's the Tungrians, and this uh, is one of the, um, an example of one of their routine reports. We've got about 30-odd examples of this report, uh, this type of report, which is really quite clear, brief, concise, sort of daily report of the state of the unit. There's a couple of things you will notice about it, uh, perhaps um, going back to O-level or even A-level Latin. Um, one is the fact that they've got it wrong here. Um, <laughs> Debunt, where it should be debent. And interestingly enough, in all of the examples, most of them fragmentary, this is the only complete example, in all of the examples where this part of the text survives, debunt is repeated. So it's obviously copied from some uh, exemplar, uh, and it represents a phonetic um, value, of course. That must have been how they said it. But the other interesting thing about that is that, uh, as you would, uh, contrary to what you might expect, all of the separate examples of these are written in different hands. So they don't just get a, a sort of ready-made chit and sign it. They're writing them themselves from some exemplar, or at least several dozen people are writing these things. Um, uh, and again, that, of course, tells us something about the literate habits of these people and the, the levels of literacy and usage of documentation. And this, um, this, uh, these reports relate to the ninth cohort of Batavians, which was in occupation of Vindalanda from about late 90s through to the early 100s, roughly about 197 to 104. And we know that at that time, the uh, uh, commanding officer of the unit was called Flavius Carialis, and he was stationed uh, at Vindolanda with this unit, in command of this unit. And that's the period three officers' residence, which has generated most of the written material uh, which, um, which formed this collection from Vindolanda. So it's Carialis and the Batavians who bulk largest in our documentation. And just for, uh, for reference, the, um, this, is, this is the area that we're talking about as the area of origin of these people. I'll come back to this in just a few moments. The Batavians here and the Tungrians here. So as I said, Netherlands and Lower Rhine um, is, is the area from which these soldiers and the officers are drawn. Not, uh, undoubtedly, not exclusively. I mean, there will have been other people at Vindolanda, uh, of course, but that's, this, is, this is the focus of the the social and uh, ethnic milieu, as it were, from which, in, within which this material is being generated. And uh, there are uh, very many ways in which one could illustrate the, um, the ways in which this material um, uh, gives us information about the, um, about the uh, um, Romanization, if you like. It's not a term we're allowed to use these days. Um, but anyway, the acculturation of this region in this period. Uh, but before I uh, perhaps get into that, one, one of the things um, which um, uh, I, I think is perhaps worth doing is to uh, just give you an example of the way in which I think the material itself connects to the wider world. Um, we're not just focused on a very small area of northern Britain, uh, but thinking about the way in which the Roman occupation and the Roman military machine and the Roman social mores actually link up to... Uh, Make, make it seem like part of the Roman Empire. And one way um, of doing this um, is uh, to ask you to imagine the connection between um, various things which uh, appear on the following three slides. Uh, one is uh, this um, 
inscription which comes from a place called Fulginii, which is in uh, Umbria. Actually, I was there last week, and uh, to my very great disappointment, Alitalia failed to cancel the flight which I was uh, coming back on. This is Foligno in Umbria. And this, this is an inscription which commemorates somebody whose name is lost. Um, but as you can see, he was a person who held various offices in, in uh, the army and in various parts of the Roman world, the Roman Empire, including Armenia, and right down at the end, Egypt, and in the uh, second, uh, third and fourth lines, uh, something connected with uh, a census in Britain, as you can see. Uh, so that's the first object. Uh, the second is this, which um, uh, some of you may recognize, um, the so-called uh, Colossus of Memnon in the great Theban plain, standing before what used to be a mortuary temple, which has now disappeared, um, on the west bank of the Nile, uh, just opposite Luxor. And that is part of the leg of this statue, uh, which I'll come back to in a moment. And the third object uh, is this letter from Vindolanda, uh, which um, uh, contains, this is the back, the address, which contains in this slanting format, which I mentioned before, uh, the name of the person who wrote the letter, Ab, and then the name. Well, just to go back, the, uh, it's been known for a long time, conjectured quite rightly, I'm sure, for a long time, that the person who was honored by this inscription in Fulginii was a native of that town, a man called Quintus Haterius Nepos, who held high offices which culminated in the becoming governor of Egypt in the, uh, between 122 and 125, just at the period when Hadrian's Wall was being built. So that's the first, uh, the first fact, fact which connects these things. Uh, the second uh, thing is that the statue, the right-hand statue, which was called the Colossus of Memnon in antiquity, was famous and visited by uh, tourists of all sorts, including Hadrian's wife, uh, the Empress Sabina, because uh, the, um, in the early morning, when struck by the first rays of the sun, it emitted this curious singing noise. Um, this is um, at least until AD 212, when it shut up and never <laughs> sang again. Um, uh, it, was, it, was a, it, was a, it was a tourist site, and people came here, and they wrote, they scrambled up the leg, as I did, to, uh, I was only looking, but they, they would in, in, inscribe, Kilroy was here, um, or in the case of the Empress Sabina, the Empress Sabina was here. And they, they said, I came, I saw, I heard it sing, and so on. And sometimes they wrote long poems, which are, many of which are inscribed in here. Well, uh, one of the people who wrote um, his uh, uh, Kilroy was here message on this was Quintus Haterius Nepos, the man from uh, uh, Foligno, Fulginia in Umbria, who was commemorated on that inscription. And as you're probably way ahead of me by now, the person who wrote this letter, which was found at Vindolanda, is that same Haterius Nepos probably around AD 92. So what we've got here is three objects going from uh, 92 across to uh, 30 years later when he's governor of Egypt in 122 to 5, and then the uh, commemorative inscription, which the date, the exact date of which we don't know, presumably set up after his death sometime in the 120s or 130s. And that, I think, uh, um, it's quite clear from the content of the, this, this letter and from what we know about the career of this Heterius Nepos, that this letter was almost certainly written by him to uh, one of the commanding officers at Vindolanda in about AD 92, at a time when Haterius Nepos himself was in the very early stages of his official career and was probably the commanding officer. I'm, I'm sure, actually, I can't prove it, but I'm pretty sure 
that he was the commanding officer at the, of the unit at Corbridge, just down the road. Uh, these are the equestrian officers, the high equestrian officers, the high administrators of the Roman Empire, running across huge territories and, of course, huge varieties of experience, and yet varieties of experience which in some ways, of course, are linked by uh, very firm structures and uh, not least, of course, by the institutional structures of information which are represented by, these, by this material. These, of course, are the gents, and uh, I just wanted to, uh, to uh, go back to a couple of things which illustrate um, life, the way in which life appears up High society life, if you like, appears at Vindolanda in these very humble texts. First of all, this one, uh, which uh, refers, as you can see, I think, from the translation, uh, to a man called Lucius Marcellus. And this was a letter written by Flavius Carialis, the commanding officer of the unit at Vindolanda, um, uh, asking, really, for patronage from the governor of the province. Now, Lucius Marcellus, uh, whom we know to have been governor in AD 103, was a very distinguished man, a friend of Trajan um, and um, a brother of very distinguished um, um, jurisprudent uh, Roman law expert um, and he was consul uh, at least once, his brother I think was consul twice. So this is, these are the highest uh, ranks of the Roman senatorial order into which our Batavian commanding officer is trying to connect himself. And uh, since he wrote this letter to somebody whom we don't otherwise know um, in detail, uh, it must have been, uh, as it were, feasible for him to do that through using the connections of the Roman officer, military, gubernatorial class in the Roman province. And the second um, item which uh, illustrates this is another uh, rather um, a fragment which, which, for which I don't have a very good context. But again, it comes from the same uh, period and it's very fragmentary. And again, it appears to be asking for some mentioning some kind of appointment to a military tribunate. But the thing that's really striking about this is that right-hand column, which I've transcribed there and tried to translate. Uh, that, that's something that could have come out of one of the uh, letters of recommendation written by Cicero or Pliny. Uh, indeed, of course, we, um, uh, one, one, could, one could imagine literary figures passing through Vindolanda, or perhaps not passing through, but passing up to Vindolanda and, and uh, dropping stuff like this. But that perhaps would be a little bit fanciful. Um, you may remember that, uh, that of course, Pliny, Pliny himself, the younger Pliny, did attempt a, a, an act of patronage from this very same governor of Britain, Marcellus, to get a tribunate for his friend Suetonius, the biographer of the Caesars. And I, I, if I had the courage, I'd say I thought this was, this was a draft of Pliny's letter, <laughs> try, trying to get Suetonius jobbed into a tribunate in Britain, but um, I don't really have the courage to do that. The, the, the gents, of course, are doing all this kind of stuff, and one of the longest texts that we have from Vindolanda is this account, 110 lines of accounts of uh, expenditure or, or uh, uh, purchase, acquisition, and use of chickens, chickens and geese, for various um, celebratory occasions in the commanding officer's residence, uh, which include the discharge of soldiers, uh, of officers, uh, but also visit, visitor, visits from high up, uh, offices including the, one of the legates of legionary legates of the province and also the governor. So the, the, the lifestyle uh, again is, is um, illustrated in ways which uh, suggest how the infrastructure uh, which underpins all this is uh, a social and economic infrastructure of great complexity and one which has the ability to provide people with the um, not merely the necessities of life but also the luxuries. The officers 
wives, of course, had their coffee mornings. And this is the most famous, uh, perhaps, of all of the letters, which I won't try to uh, um, analyse in any detail. This is the birthday invitation sent by uh, Claudia Severa to uh, Lepidina, who is the wife of Flavius Cariolis, the commanding officer at Vindolanda, asking her to come to the... Uh, this is 9-11, by the way, the third day before the Ides of September. Um, or 11-9, as we probably would say here. Um, for the celebration of her birthday. And um, the, uh, there are various interesting points about this text, not the least of which is that, quite clearly, the closing section of this, which is this uh, represented by this uh, translation down here, farewell sister, my dearest soul, etc., etc., has been written by the lady herself. It's uh, clearly her own hand. And that practice of writing the closure in your own hand is very common in these letters and in letters in the Greek and Roman world generally. Uh, it's also a good illustration, uh, the Latinity of it, which I'm not going to go to in any detail, is a good illustration of the fact that, as all Oxford professors know, bad handwriting does not equal illiteracy. <laughs> uh, at least uh, it's a point um, I have made to various of my colleagues. <laughs> Whilst the women are having coffee mornings, the men are out hunting when they're not fighting. Of course. They don't appear to have been doing very much fighting in this part of the world at this time, although no doubt it did happen. There isn't much evidence for it in the writing tablets, but here is, here is their evidence for their, their hunting activities, which again um, connects, uh, 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 it is possible to bring in um, other evidence, which uh, again suggests the range over which these people operate. The, uh, the person uh, commemorated on this inscription is uh, a character called Elias Brockus, who is one of the correspondents of Flavius Cariolis, another local commanding officer, and another one who is uh, uh, receives correspondence relating to hunting, actually, uh, interestingly enough. And uh, you can see his, um, the, 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 uh, the tombstone of this guy as Elias Brockus, which quite clearly has <coughs> hunting connotations, not just the um, um, iconography at the side, which is described in Latin, but also, of course, the dedication to Diana, uh, which obviously has uh, that resonance. And this particular inscription comes from the Danube, from one of the Balkan provinces, Pannonia, which I guess must be where this guy was from. Again, if you make the link, if you, th if you think it's the same person, which I do, again, it takes these, these military officers across huge stretches of the empire and uh, operating, as it were, within a social and, uh, and cultural framework, which is common, uh, very common. Um, but I wanted to just um, uh, move um, now to a rather lower social register, uh, or a register which is lower in some ways, um, quite a lot of the material that we've got um, reflects on the um, in this social and economic lifestyle, not a little of it relating to slaves and functionaries in the commanding officer's household. And this is one of them. Um, and this was the one I uh, illustrated before. And again, the translation uh, gives you, um, um, I think, a pretty clear idea of what the, um, what the subject matter is. Uh, expenditure for the Saturnalia... <coughs> Um, and uh, as you can see at the bottom, uh, a, um, on the back of uh, the address, uh, two candidates, to a slave. Genialis is one of the other commanding officers in this commanding officer's residence at Vindolanda in the early 90s um, from Severus. A couple of interesting uh, points about this. I mean, first of all, there's the social interest of the Saturnalia and the fact that they are uh, engaging in these, uh, as it were, standard Roman um, uh, religious festivals, but a couple of other points. Uh, first of all, 
a point that this, um, this uh, the word which is translated by expenditure here uh, is this word, and it's clearly a mistake. I haven't corrected it on the slide. Um, the Latin word, um, this is a wonderful illustration of uh, how very often, even when you can read the word very clearly, you don't know what it means. And this is one example. We have here a word which is quite clearly S-O-U-X-T-U-M, suxtum, um, which is, uh, ha had been uh, completely inexplicable to us, and uh, our linguistic expert um, uh, led us to the interpretation of the word expenditure by saying that he thought it was a sort of Celticized form of the word sumptus, the Latin word sumptus, which would be expenditure, that's okay. Um, well, this was all right until about two years ago, when uh, somewhere in the middle of France, somebody unearthed in an archaeological excavation a large cooking pot with the word suxtum written on it. It's obviously, a, it's obviously a local word for a cooking pot, but it never turned up before anywhere. And now I think we have two other ex uh, um, occurrences of it on archaeological objects. Uh, which elucidate the, um, the meaning of this. So there's always something to be discovered, even if it may seem very trivial. But there is a more serious point underlying all this, which is that one of the contributions, and again, this could be the subject of a whole lecture in itself, one of the, contribu the key contributions which these texts make to our knowledge is to, the, uh, to our knowledge of the register of Latin at this level, at this period. Not literary Latin, and not exactly vulgar Latin, but ordinary, everyday Latin, as it is used and spoken in this part of the empire at this time. There's a very important, there's a lot of very important linguistic information in here. The other thing uh, which uh, comes out of this is social. Um, you see the addresses, it's to, uh, to Candidus, who is a slave, written by a cornicularius who's a military officer, not a very high up officer, but an officer of a sort of NCO level. And uh, um, you may also see that uh, if you look here at the closing greeting, that that on the right-hand side, that actually says valet frater. Now, it strikes me as a little unusual that a military officer should address a slave as frater. I'll leave that with you. Somebody asked me whether I thought it was possible that they were Christians. I think at this date, and it's not a frivolous question, uh, and it wouldn't be a frivolous answer, but I think at this date in the Roman army, the answer must be almost certainly not. Um, and, well, how do they get their things? How do they get the, uh, the luxuries of life which <coughs> underpin this life? How well in a sort of free market, some, some semblance of a free market economy, as you can see. Um, go out into the market and get them. And again, this is within, um, you know, 10 or 15 years of the first occupation of this region, uh, you are actually finding, um, um, first of all, imported goods, olives and so on, which come a long way. Uh, we, have, we have one account which has pepper mentioned in it, um, which comes even further. Uh, but also, of course, the fact that they're dealing in a cash economy with uh, uh, people who um, quite clearly are well plugged into the, the economic structures. And this uh, rather complicated-looking text, which I won't try to explicate at any length, is another example of that, an account which gives you in very great detail uh, large numbers of different kinds of commodities or items, goods, uh, with unit prices and, um, and total prices, uh, uh, the, the, the units multiplied by the price in order to construct an account of things which include uh, bowls and cloaks and curtains down at the bottom. Um, um, some people think that this was a rather elaborate, um, an account relating to a rather elaborate preparations for the visit of Hadrian. Uh, well, it's possible. Um, come and have a look and sketch out the line of the wall. But um, whatever, whatever the occasion for this is, it's quite clear that the... Uh, 
the range and quantity of goods involved, uh, again, suggests a really highly developed uh, economic um, structure and a highly developed supply structure, which, of course, the Roman army uh, was capable of delivering. Um, moving a little further down the social register and away from the officers, the, um, the, um, the men were not entirely ignored. And uh, this letter itself has some uh, points of interest. Um, for one thing, um, the uh, address to Carialis, the commanding officer, addresses him as Regi Suel, uh, which is quite interesting. Um, king. Well, some people have thought that Carialis might be addressed as king because he was one of the elites of the Batavian tribe, one of the chieftains. It certainly would have been part of that lineage. Uh, the only other example we've got of a, of a uh, of the use of that formula in, a, in an address of a letter actually comes from Egypt, of a, from a veteran, Roman veteran soldier writing to his father, in which he writes to his father as Regi Suo. So it's obviously some sort of, a, uh, of an epistolary cliché, but not a very common one. Um, the other uh, striking thing about this letter, of course, is, uh, as you can see by when you look down uh, towards the bottom, it's the PS that counts. My fellow soldiers have no beer, please send some as soon as possible. Um, <laughs> and um, another um, uh, item of linguistic interest in this goes back to the point I made about the usage of that verb debunt earlier on. This one actually, when it says my fellow soldiers have no beer, it actually says habunt. Again, the same linguistic or phonetic value represented in that idiosyncratic form of the uh, third person plural of the present indicative of habeos. Um, the Brits don't get much of a look in. Uh, but here they are on this text, um, which uh, refers to them briefly as the Britunculi, the little Brits, patronising diminutive, uh, not, uh, a term not attested anywhere else in Latin, uh, but that's, it's not the only uh, example from Vindalander of terms not attested uh, elsewhere, as you can see. But this one, at least, is, is very uh, understandable. When we published this, we thought it was probably a, a memorandum about the fighting habits of the Britons, which was perhaps intended for some local commander who was hoping to recruit some of them. Um, I now think perhaps, um, perhaps it was a, um, an arms dealer who was selling goods to the Britons so that the Romans could then complain that they had weapons of mass destruction and destroy them. <laughs> but that was perhaps just a little too topical. I think um, one of the most striking things about this, uh, when one does move away from the elite officer class, is uh, the, the variety of activity, commercial and social, uh, which is attested, as it were, as part of the infrastructure of the Roman occupation here. And this is uh, an example which I, with which I want to move towards a conclusion now. Um, this tablet is, uh, is an account of wheat, as you can see. I haven't tried to translate it. It's, um, it's an account drawn up by somebody who is clearly a wheat uh, dealer, a dealer in cereals. And he's been um, issuing various uh, amounts, modi, of grain um, to various groups of people and to individuals. And this is an account which is written on, I think, three separate leaves, of which I've only reproduced two here. And on the back of this text, he's scribbled something else. It's written, the two texts are written certainly by the same hand, same handwriting. Um, and this is the text, and this is the translation, the, te the um, transcription and translation of it. So this serial dealer has transcribed a sort of petition 
complaining that he's been done over by the military, beaten up, and he's appealing to somebody for redress against having been beaten up. As befits an honest man, I implore your majesty not to allow me, an innocent man, to have been beaten with rods. And uh, I think actually that bit about Proclus in the middle is probably not right, but um, it's, a, it's a detail we don't need to worry about for the moment. I was unable to complain to the prefect, that would be the prefect of the unit, complain to the beneficiarius, that's one of the prefect's adjutants, and the rest of the centurions, but now I think he's probably going higher, and the person to whom he is uh, appealing is addressed as maestas, to our maestas, and that must be, I think, at least the provincial governor. Some people have suggested it might be the emperor himself, I think that's less likely uh, in this uh, milieu, but it, m it must be at least the provincial governor, I think, uh, asking... Uh, asking really for, for redress against the treatment which he's received. So here what we've got actually is somebody uh, scribbling a draft of a petition on the back of one of his accounts. He is, as he describes himself, as you can see in the middle of the second part of the text, hominem transmarinum or transmarinum et, et innocentem, somebody from overseas and an innocent man. And uh, I think certainly a civilian trader who is making his living in the milieu of the Roman army at Vindolanda. And yet of course, is, is, is sufficiently skilled in uh, methods of communication and able to write Latin at this level, which, although it's not perfect, is really not half bad. Um, this actually um, leads to one or two reflections about literacy uh, and about the use of language and, and written language in this milieu by uh, these acculturated Batavians. Um, and one of the things which uh, I think still represents a challenge is... Uh, the stylus tablets, but this one in particular I thought I would just bring along as a kind of footnote because it does reflect on this very issue. This is a tablet which was first published in 1917. It's not from uh, Vindolanda, it's from one of the little islands just off the coast of Holland. It's a, a text from Frisia. And uh, when it was first published in 1917, it was um, uh, published, uh, the published edition which you'll find if you went to look it up will tell you that it is actually a contract for the sale of a Frisian ox. Um, and one of the reasons that, the, 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 only, the only reason why, the only uh, uh, point in the text which justifies the, um, the belief that it was the sale of an ox, apart from the fact that it comes from Frisia and is thought to date to a period around AD 30, so it's, it's 70 years earlier than the Batavian text we've been looking at, is the fact that it contained the word bovem, B-O-V-E-M, B-O-U-V-E-M, which is uh, actually supposed to be here. Um, however, the new imaging methods which we've been developing here, which we apply to this, reveal quite clearly that that actually is the Latin word quem, um, not bovem at all. It's got nothing to do with, um, to do with uh, an ox sale, but it's a contract of loan written 70 years earlier at this tiny island, Tolson, in the Netherlands, um, uh, in around AD 30, 29 actually, dated by the consuls of 29. And you can see here that this very formula, very formal-looking legal document uh, already contains uh, the name of a Batavian soldier appearing as one of the witnesses uh, to, this, uh, to this contract on the back of this stylus tablet uh, from this uh, even more out-of-the-way place than the home of some of the Batavians relating uh, to, the, um, to the occupation of the 5th Legion, the 5th Roman Legion, which was in occupation... Uh, at this region at this time. So the literacy aspect of it really I think is one of the most interesting um, uh, and striking features of 
this collection of material. And I wanted to just end now with, uh, leave you with a reflection on these four tiny little fragments. Um, the, uh, the middle one, uh, the, sorry, the third one down, is, uh, was one of the mo most surprising things that we found in our uh, early, earliest examination of these fragments. As you can see, this contains a um, writing which looks rather different from that very cursive writing which I showed you in the earlier examples. This is a capital hand. What it actually contains is um, a copy of a line from the ninth book of Virgil's Aeneid. Inter ar pavidam molitans finata per urdem is what it says. It's a line which is taken out of... I mean, does, it, it's a line which doesn't have any context, any meaning on its own. I mean, it's part of a bigger sentence, as it were. And it, it looks like a writing exercise. As you can see, the hand degenerates rather badly in the second part of the line and something has been written after it. Could, could well be a writing exercise by one of the children of the commanding officer at the fort in Vindolanda. And uh, to, to pluck a line out of the middle of the Aeneid, not a particularly memorable line, uh, first of all, is suggestive in itself. The second uh, piece, uh, or the top piece, this is actually one piece which has got writing on both sides. And again, decipherment of this was, was due to some rather, um, rather nice image enhancement methods which produced on second reading, a text which is very different from what we've been able to read on the first reading. Uh, the, the images of the second uh, reading actually uh, produced at the, here, at the beginning of the second line on this side, quite clearly, T-R-O-I-A. Now, T-R-O-I-A, Troyai, uh, does put you in mind of the first line of the Aeneid. Arma virumque cano Troyai qui prima saboris. And indeed, that's what it is. It's two versions of the first line of the Aeneid written on the uh, two sides of a single fragment in different hands, again. And finally, this one, which is unpublished uh, yet. It was found in uh, 2001 or two, I think. Uh, and again, uh, is another line of Virgil, um, this time from the Georgics, uh, from the first Georgic. Again, not a, particular, not, not a line that you would expect people to be carrying around in their heads, the way they carry the first line of the Aeneid as it might be, or a quotation from Hallett. Um, the cumulative force of these uh, is really quite considerable and suggests, uh, first of all, of course, the, the habits of liter literacy uh, extend beyond mere functional literacy, because we're talking about literature here, as I've already suggested earlier. And secondly, uh, that um, they probably had texts of Virgil with them. How else would they know this stuff? <coughs> At that point, I think... Um, maybe uh, I will leave you, but uh, much of the material uh, which I've talked, all of the material which I've talked about, most of it, and uh, much more is to be found on the, the website if you're interested, uh, vindolanda.csa.ox.ac.uk. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.